We're going to continue in questions 18 and 19 of the larger catechism today. Everybody has the handout and the review sheet. Hopefully. Some more up here if you need one. Let's open in prayer. Our great and majestic God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you this morning. We thank you for uh, bringing us together uh, to learn in this Sunday school hour. Pray, pray your spirit be with us, uh, teaching us by your word, uh, imparting truth to our hearts so that we may love you, our God, more and more. Uh, may all the theology we study lead to doxology. Lord, uh, this is the desire of our heart. Pray you would make it so. And uh, be with us this hour. Again, in Jesus' name, amen. Right. We'll start with that review. As we've done, so we'll say these answers together, starting at question 11. How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? The scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. What are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious grace, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof, and also according to his sovereign power, and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extended or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted, for the praise of the glory of his justice. How doth God execute his decrees? God executed his decrees in the works of creation and progress, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein, for himself, within the space of six days, and all very good. How did God create angels? God created all the angels' spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute his commandments, and to praise his name, yet subject to change. How did God create man? After God had made all other creatures, he created man male and female formed the body of man of the dust of the ground, and the woman of the rib of man, and endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made 
after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in the hearts, and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. That brings us to question 18, which we'll also say together. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. So I know we just read them, but we'll do well to briefly examine where we've been in previous questions in order to set up this question and answer today. So just looking back at question 12 briefly, what are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will. God's decrees are from all eternity. It says it there in question 12. God's decrees are unchangeable. So our first text will be Job 42, verse 2. Feel free to turn to these and call them out. God's decrees are from all eternity and unchangeable. See that in Job 42, verse 2. Somebody have that? Yes. Um, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. No purpose of God's can be withheld, thwarted. In Daniel 4.34, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking of God, declares similarly, and none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? So then, looking briefly again at question 14, how does God execute these decrees that are made from all eternity and are unchangeable? God executed his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So in other words, God accomplishes his decrees through his works of creation, which we looked at for a few weeks. And he accomplishes those decrees or plans through his works of providence. It's creation and providence. God's decrees, his end goals, if you will, are in view when we examine providence. And in fact, his decrees depend <coughs> on his providence, we'd argue. His holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing. Could it really be any other way? Is the question. Children, maybe you've written a story before, or hopefully read some books. Stories have an ending. Right? And when you write stories or read books, what comes before the ending? Go ahead. The beginning. The beginning? Okay, what else? How about all the events leading up to the end? And who who decided that those things would be there? The author, let me say it over here. Thank you. Yeah, you, if you're writing the story, or the author wrote in those things. God decreed or planned what redemptive history would look like, okay, the whole span, including the end, 
and he actively governs and preserves it. He did not create everything and let it go, as a theist would tell us. Right? He did not wind up the clock and put his hands over his head and just sit back and he's watching, waiting to see what will happen. That is not our God. Let's think about this. Our God, the God of the Bible, has a wonderful ending to redemptive history planned out. Included in that grand ending to the story will be a great throng of people, right, from every tribe and tongue and nation, who will inherit everlasting life, enjoying and praising the triune God, our triune God, forever. God decreed this end. This end is decreed. And God preserves and governs all that happened before that in his providence. We see that with the death of his own son. Right? Acts 4, 27. And we have Acts 4, 27. Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Yeah, I'm sorry. The 28th. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There, right? There. <laughs> the Father purposed, purposed and determined for our Lord Jesus to be put to death. In order to bring about his decree of salvation, that end decree, right? In order to purchase forgiveness for ruined sinners. Like us. So that's just one. But what else? How much does our God preserve and govern? Just how much does He do that? We've got a few texts now. Psalm 103, 19. Line these up. Call them out. Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Thank you. Kingdom rules over all. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. How many things According to the counsel of his will, all things. Job 38, 32-41. <laughs> 
Who does those things? Go ahead. God, that's right. God does all those things. Psalm 104, 24 to 27. The Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of the creatures. Here to see great and wide, which seems of creatures innumerable. Living things so small and great, there go the ships and the devices which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food and be Right. These all look to you. God orders the rain, the lightnings, everything in the ocean. Remember how the apostles marveled at the fact that the wind and the waves obeyed our Lord Jesus Christ. We also see here God feeds right, the bears, the lions, the ravens, those animals you watch on TV, children. God's feeding them. All creatures. Did something a little different today. We're going to squeeze in question 19 right here. It's asking the question, well, what about angels? We're talking about the rest of his creation. The whole creation is ordered. What about angels? Can we read that one? We could say it. I think you have it in your handout. What is God's providence for the angels? God, by his providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrevocably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory and establish the rest in holiness happiness, employing them all at his pleasure in the administration of his power, mercy, and justice. So we discussed angels a little before. We looked at Jude 6 a couple weeks, I think. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. We said this before, there's no salvation for fallen angels, right? Which our answer says, irrevocably to fall into sin and damnation. They cannot come out of that state. And they were both permitted to fall. We see there. God, by his providence, permitted some of the angels. And their fall was ordered by God that phrase there, limiting and ordering that, that fall. So the angels were permitted to fall and they were ordered to fall. Both are true. Even the sins of angels 
are ordered and limited. Let Job 1, verse 12. never forget that even Satan, you know, we said this before, that he's under the providential hand of God. He's on a leash, if you will. And we also see that God has providentially ordered some angels to be holy. Right? There are fallen angels and there are holy angels. Mark 8, 38. God has ordered holy angels. Right? He has ordained that they stay holy and not fall. And those angels carry out God's power, mercy, and justice. Second Samuel twenty four, sixteen. Hebrews 1, 14. Okay. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels do God's will. They do His bidding. They do His carry out His power, mercy, justice. God executes His decrees by providentially governing angels. So, Going back to our question, just how much does our God deserve and govern? Hopefully we've seen it. So far, he governs everything. Everything. Isaiah 46. I think that might be 9 and 10. Again, we see the same picture again and again. God declares the end from the beginning. He does not barely permit, to use the language in another place of our confession, he does not merely allow things to happen. He declares them. His counsel and his decrees are unchangeable. And he will accomplish all that he has purposed all that he's decreed. Now, if God preserves and governs all his creation and all his creatures, including men and angels, does that make God the author of sin? Dr. James Anderson, a professor at RTS, he suggests that God can be said 
indeed to be the author of sin comparable to the author of a story, as I was trying to explain earlier, but not in a way that makes him morally responsible. Right? He suggests, gives this comparison, um, that Tolkien shouldn't be thought of any less for Gollum's decisions in the story of The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's the author. Right? God can, said, can be said to be the author of sin, comparable to the author of a story, but not in a way that makes him morally responsible. Though they are providentially governed by God, men and angels are morally responsible for their own decisions. Now, if man's decisions are governed by God, does this take away from man's free will? These are questions that we get in our uh, Reformed tradition, but it's good for us to think about them. Now, let's be clear, we do not support the idea of free will if that means that man has a free will independent of God's decrees. We just said God has decrees, they are fixed, they're unchangeable. So if we're talking about that kind of free will, nobody has that kind of free will. He declares the end from the beginning. No purpose of his can be thwarted. All things are worked according to the counsel of his will. But we do support what Dr. Anderson also calls a compatibilist view of free will. Children, what do we mean when we say two things are compatible? They go together, right? Cookies and milk, compatible. They go together. We hold that God's Sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible. And we're able to confess what we've said here, that God governs and preserves all his creatures and their actions on one hand, and on the other hand, confess as in the Confession of Faith 9.1, that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So let's see this compatibilist view laid out in Scripture. Genesis 45, 4 through 8. Verse 20. A couple pages over, maybe. I've got it. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Acts 2.23 I got it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Thank you. And notice that Joseph was able to say to his brothers, You sold me. You meant evil against me. Peter was able to say to the crowd, You crucified Jesus. Man exercises his will and is responsible for the sin. And yet Joseph also says to his brothers, Your selling me was God sending me. God sent me before you. God meant your selling me for good. Peter says that our Lord Jesus Christ's death was determined and purpose. We saw this earlier. By God beforehand. So again we see that grand ending, the decree of God, depends on his providence, on his governing and preserving. Why does God work in this way? Why does he powerfully preserve and govern all his creatures and order their actions to the last phrase in the answer, to or for his own glory. This is a theme, right? We've seen it before. He created for his own glory. He providentially works everything for his own glory. Isaiah 43, 25. I got that. I, even I, am he who blocks out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not for his own sake. A few pages over. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11. 9 through 11. I got it. For my name's sake, I defer my, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Revelation 5, 9-14. I got it. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take control of the open seals, for you were slain by your blood and ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to the God, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, Numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, 
For his own sake, for his own glory. See how they are praising God. To, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. And what are they talking about before that? His providence. How he has done all these things. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Our God gets all the glory. And that's good for us. It's good for those who have been redeemed by the triune God. For those who have been liberated from the bondage of sin and indwelt with the spirit of the living God. It's good for us. So this truth of providence is also meant to comfort us. The promises of God depend on his providence. Again, it couldn't be any other way. And this takes us back to the descriptive words found in that catechism answer. What kind of preserving and governing is this that is to the glory of God? It's a providence that is most holy, wise, and most powerful. Our God, who did not spare his own son, but even ordained it to happen, who wrote the worst sin imaginable into the story of redemption, on the basis of that finished work of Christ, for us, assures us such promises as Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If we are united to Christ by faith, and our sins are washed by his blood, we can be assured that everything, every mountain, every valley, every trial, is foreordained. Not only for God's glory, but for our good. And may we have spirit-wrought power to remember this truth and trust him. Trust him. He has brought us out of slavery to sin. And maybe he is leading us into what feels like a wilderness. He led Israel to the wilderness. Maybe our wilderness is the loss of a loved one. Loss of a job. Struggle with school. Struggles with health. Remember, church, he is the God of our fathers. He orders all things. He means it for good. And he has always ordered all things so that we can have confidence in this preserving and governing power. He's given us his word so that we can call to mind who he has been and who he will continue to be. Romans 15, verse 4.
were written for our learning. Why that we may have patience and comfort. Psalm 145, 17 through 20. righteous in all his ways and he preserves all those who love him. 1 Corinthians 10 1 through 13 a little longer. Hi guys. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drink of the spiritual rock that follows them, and that rock is Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lust, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink rose up the flesh. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Not all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear. Thank you. The scriptures were given for our instruction, for our admonition. We see how the saints of old even lamented, right, in the Psalms, genuinely lamented when grieved by hard providences. Psalm 25 is one of my favorites. He's crying out to God, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. But let's remember how faithful God has been to our fathers that we just saw. God is faithful. And let's have confidence in this, our God. It's because of his perfect providence that we can cling to precious texts like Isaiah 41.10, Jeremiah 32.40. He is our strong, righteous right hand. He will help us. Think also with me for a minute about the context of Romans 11. We say this, these verses a lot. <clears throat> Think about the context here. The Apostle Paul is considering the providence of God. How God has governed all things to this point to mysteriously graft in the Gentiles, that's us, into the people of God. 
and how God will mysteriously save all of Israel for the end. But it's this, it's the providence of God that moves Paul to exclaim in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. A lot of the themes we just talked about are all wrapped up right there. So may we be able to praise our God for this, his perfect providence, for his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Time with questions. God declaring all and um, not being responsible for the sin and that many names in the Lord are responsible for their sin but God who predestined is not responsible for it. Very um, hard to get your head around. Yeah. And I've had these conversations before with people and um Unless God touches your heart, there's no understanding. And I don't even know if you can understand it logically. Um, can you just talk about that some more? Um, yes. Because it's to them, when you talk to these people, it's folly. That God is twisted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's not an easy thing. Right. Yeah, it's, it's folly to those who are perishing. But yes, it's, it's hard. It's hard even for us um, to understand these things. Um, so unless the Spirit of God enlightens that person, I was debating... I don't even know if it's something that we yeah. can even understand. No, in the end, um, Dr. Anderson does a class on RTS online and he goes through a lot of this. And when I was first becoming Reformed and going through all of these kind of teachings and uh, he's he's climaxing in all of this teaching and uh, I'm waiting for the answer. Like, how can God be sovereign and yet not responsible? And in the end he says, at the end of that class he says, we don't know. We don't know. We just know it's true. So that's, it's really hard to wrap our minds around. I'll tell you another story. Uh, a cousin of mine same age. I was converted about 11 years ago, and uh, I think a, a mistake that I made was he came at, of course, people like this, they come at Christianity with arguments like this, right? They're not concerned about the gospel, they're not concerned about sin and forgiveness, they're concerned about, well, I want God to function the way I want him to function, or else it's not fair. So I think we would do well to be careful on debating what matters. Uh, start with what matters. 
Just like you just said, unless their heart is renewed, we're not gonna we're not gonna argue someone into the kingdom by getting them to understand God's sovereignty first. They need to understand sin first. Sin and salvation. Right? Um, it's almost like it comes from the point of blame. They want somebody to blame for the sin, but don't want to take responsibility for the sin. Anything against God's moral will, His moral law. Which verse is that?
Dr. Shaw used to be at Greenville. He now is at Reformation Bible College. But he did a lecture on the problem of evil at a uh, Greenville conference a number of years ago. But um, I would recommend that. If you do evil, if you do against God's moral law. So was there a discussion of the probability of evil? I feel like there's always people who have a definition ready because it always seems like we see through a biblical perspective, we see the word evil a certain way, and the world is a different way. So I was just wondering what the proper biblical definition of the word evil is. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Oh God, our God, you are high and lifted up. And some of these things are very lofty things, Lord. Grateful that the revealed things belong to us and to our children. But the secret things belong to you. So we desire to, to know your ways, to know you, our Lord and our God. Father, give us the comforts that we've talked about, knowing that you are ordering and governing and preserving all things. Yet give us contentment um, with not being able to have all the answers. We will serve you. We will love you thankful for the ways that you have worked all things according to the counsel of your will. We pray you give us your spirit to allow us to trust you more and go on with our lives and do the works that you have prepared beforehand. Let it all be for your glory.